Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This episode of Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is brought to you ad-free by Adaptive Biotechnologies. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, episode two in our three-part series on immunotherapy, we are joined again by Megan Gutierrez, CEO of the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and Dr. Leo Wong of City of Hope to pick up where we left off on episode one to talk about the very exciting present and future of immunotherapy. Enjoy the show. So let's think about exactly what was discussed in the last episode. We're in the age of immunotherapy. We're in the age of personalized medicine, which means we care about the actual person first, and then we worry about what to do with them afterwards. This has fundamentally changed the way that medicine, practitioners, nurses, social workers, advocate groups are approaching, I guess, this version of customer service, right, Leo? You know, it is. it has been a fundamental change. I like to think that we, as a field, have always thought about the patient first and the disease second. But I do think that we're getting a much more granular sense of what the disease is. And in that sense, there are many, many more options available and many more choices to make. That is and can be quite challenging and daunting both for providers and for patients and their families. And I really appreciate the work that you and Megan and others are doing on, on behalf of patient education to help them understand what has become an increasingly complex landscape in the past few years. I would actually also urge you to continue to do that advocacy on the provider side as well, because often it turns out that not all providers understand fully what options are available and what questions are important. Uh, in the previous episode, I think Megan had mentioned sequencing, which is a perfect example of something that is critically important. But because of the way that most of us were brought up, I guess, in the world of cancer therapy, it is very difficult to take a promising therapy and move it from something that is a second line to something that is first line when there is already a first line therapy that works relatively well. And so as an example, uh, people are increasingly talking about using CD19 targeted CAR T cells at diagnosis rather than at relapse. And we're moving in that direction and, and it's a good direction to move in. It's just taking longer than we, I think it should. Similarly, as we move to increasingly tailored clinical trials and N of one types of endeavors, it becomes more complex both for patients to navigate, but also for providers to navigate. It turns out that there has been an abundance of research demonstrating that in the era of 
genomic sequencing for tumors, many oncologists don't fully appreciate what the right tests are to order or how to act on the results of those tests. So there does need to be a lot of education on both sides. And it really is helpful to have organizations like the Lymphoma Research Foundation uh, to, to do that education. No, I was just going to say kind of um, in response to that question as well, I'm thinking about the broader implications. One thing that we've been um, incredibly excited to see is that many of the new immunotherapies, in fact, impact patient populations who have historically experienced poor outcomes and have limited treatment options. So I think the advent of some of these novel therapies in those disease states in particular have brought great hope and and promise to our community. So I think certainly that's been an important shift to now actually have options to discuss with these patients. Um, I think overall, as we think about the applicability of these immunotherapies and the development of new agents and categories of immunotherapies, it will be very important to follow the data and to make significant investment in long-term follow-up so that we can better understand efficacy and durability, as well as potential late-term toxicities or effects of different therapies so that we better understand the role they can play uh, in the treatment of different disease states. Certainly, it's something we're considering and thinking about to a significant extent in lymphoma. Absolutely. And in pediatrics also, it's critically important to think about the long-term consequences of the therapies that we implement. But you're absolutely right also that there are a variety of conditions that were previously untreatable that we now have access to because of immunotherapies. And so there are sort of two things that we're trying to solve simultaneously. One is how do we better treat hard-to-treat cancers? And the other is for cancers that we can treat, how do we improve the long-term outcomes. Absolutely. And then I think the other facet of that, taking a step back, um, obviously medically and scientifically, we're making incredible progress, the likes of which I know I've never seen before in my 10 plus years at the Lymphoma Research Foundation. But I think it's also important for us to think about patient access more broadly. Uh, And that includes the economics around some of these therapies, better understanding both the investment we're making uh, to make sure that we continue to move uh, the science and these innovations forward, but also a better understanding patients' financial burden and the role that that might play in their treatment decision making. Certainly, we want to ensure that you know the right treatment uh, comes to the right patient at the right time. But understanding the larger healthcare ecosystem and the impact new higher priced therapies may have on patient access is important. And I think that also ties into coverage policy because we want to make certain in the future, again, within the lens or looking at it through the lens of patient access, we want to make sure that coverage policies both reflect FDA approvals, but also be adaptable to reflect future scientific advancements. And I think that's also something we need to think about and ourselves be willing to adapt, because this is really the first time Um, that we've had to think through those types of measures and implications of novel cancer therapies. 
Oh man, that is such a critical question. Um, and you know, we should probably, we could have a dedicated conversation just about that. Hmm. I'm sure. Right. All right. Yes, We're going to add indeed. a fourth episode, everyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, these are, there's so much promise and optimism around these therapies and, and it is absolutely heartbreaking when patients can't get them. And that can be for a variety of different reasons, whether it's pure processing availability, right? We can't get the cells or the therapies made fast enough, or there's too long of a waiting list. Uh, that is absolutely crushing. Or it's because their insurance doesn't cover it, right? You know, right. some of these some of these therapies are four hundred sixty five thousand dollars for treatment, and and pocket change, pocket change. <laughs> we we absolutely need to do a better job of uh, allowing everybody to access these therapies. I mean, the cost of cancer care in the United States is increasing at a higher rate than any other sector in healthcare, which is astonishing to think about. And you know, in addition to reimbursement policy, and I think we have had a number of ongoing important national conversations on on reimbursement policy and how that relates to patient access. I think it's also important to think about patient exposure to out-of-pockets and non-medical resource utilization that can be associated with accessing some of these therapies. We're asking patients to travel thousands of miles in many cases to come take advantage of these therapies. And it's just not feasible for many of them, you know, even with all of the assistance that a place like my institution is able to give them, we, we house them, we feed them, you know, we provide them some spending money, but, but even ripping them away from their support structures is, is really, really difficult. Right. Caregiver burden is incredibly important when we think about access and utilizing some of these new therapies. So it's a paradigm shift when you think about what the caregivers need to do now in terms of both administrative burden and direct caregiving to a patient, say, in the weeks or months after they've been administered some of these immunotherapies. I think um, we also have begun to touch on this, but also thinking about Medicare reimbursement policies, you know, and whether or not those are adequate to cover some of the costs associated with everything from drug acquisition to expenses related to inpatient care for therapy, say like uh, CAR T-cell therapy, uh, which is utilized in uh, many lymphoma subtypes now. And it it would be a shame if inadequate reimbursement limits patient access. We've been having the same conversation for 20 plus years about getting people access to the right medicine for them. And I don't I like to be proven wrong, and that's just the cynical hat that I wear as a Jew from New York. And at the end of the day, if 80% of people are still being treated in community cancer centers, what has been happening at community cancer centers to make the doctors, those poor doctors and nurses that work there, to give them better tools to educate their community folk and get them the treatments out there? Because there's all this data that we're, we're angry at patients for not signing up for trials, and it's been the same number for 25 years, whose fault is that? Or is it even a question of fault? And it opens up a Pandora's box. But I think in terms of our awareness of this now more than ever, I look at innovation, not as much as medicine, but telehealth, telemedicine, apps and platforms now that exist, the good parts of the internet are just as important (laughs) to modern technology and patient outcomes as the clinical academic medicine itself. Discuss. 
So I think without question, technology is impacting the way we educate patients as well as providers about this rapid shift in new treatment options and possibilities for patients. So at the Lymphoma Research Foundation, we've developed a mobile app focused on lymphoma that helps to aggregate information around a patient's specific lymphoma subtype, as well as the current treatment options available to them. And that's supplemented with a toolkit that's embedded within the app that helps patients manage everything from their doctor's appointments, any medications they might be administering at home, but as well as a list of questions and opportunities for interaction and to bring some of the most up-to-date medical information to their healthcare team when it comes time to have a conversation around treatment. So I think that's just one way in which we've recognized patients are using technology in new ways to manage their cancer care. I think the other thing we've sought to do is to use technology in And in some cases, even more antiquated platforms like getting a group of human beings in a room together to have discussions around some of these novel treatments. So we actually have a program we've developed called Lymphoma Rounds. It's a case-based learning education opportunity for physicians. But what we've sought to do is make sure that in the communities where we have this program, that we make sure that both academia and community cancer centers are present. We have wonderful leaders in their communities um, who take such incredible care of lymphoma and CLL patients. But what we found is by bringing together both groups, it's a great opportunity for shared learning opportunities to present information on some of the most cutting edge therapies, including many immunotherapies, and to then also think about clinical trials and kind of build a bridge um, between community physicians and the community setting where we know the vast majority of cancer patients are treated and some of the lymphoma specialists, like those who sit on our scientific advisory board, um, who are really uh, helping to develop and initiate many of these clinical trials. We found both to just offer those two examples as critically important to more widespread adoption and to use technology to the benefit of patients. That's really wonderful. I agree that this is sort of a Pandora's box, but just to echo that there are, first of all, a little bit of pushback that, you know, there are many wonderful community centers and community oncologists. I think that often people feel like academic centers are are sort of the best and the brightest and the most current. And then the community physicians, you know, are sort of out in the, in the hinterlands. And that's absolutely not true. There are many wonderful community physicians out there every day, you know, treating and curing cancer. I do think that the incentive structure is a little bit messed up uh, because many of those people are, are being incentivized to, to be reimbursed and providing chemotherapy definitely gets you reimbursement. And, in an academic facility, practitioners are protected against that to a large extent. We can have a really long discussion about how bad our healthcare system is for medicine and how it needs to be reformed in order really to provide the best therapies for patients across the board. But a, a great start is to put the power in the hands of the patients and their families through platforms like what Megan was describing, educating patients. And, and there's a lot of actually great research on this, some of which was done by Stacy Gray, about how increasing patient literacy really improves the care that they get 
Um, and so that's one way that's really important. Another way I think is to in, improve communication between community practices and a lot of the places where this work is being done. So if we can improve the information flow between academic centers and community centers, that will help to to improve, I think, or at least implement standards of care that are more modern. And one way to do that is by creating partnerships, you know, uh, and increasing that you're seeing that. I think the economics of the healthcare landscape at this point are making it more necessary for community practices to partner with academic centers. And in general, I think that that's a good thing. You know, City of Hope, where I work, has 20-something community practices or satellite clinics around Southern California. And and that's true also for Dana-Farber and other places. And that helps to, to allow standardization and availability and access to a lot of these new therapies. So I want to cite an anecdote because this goes back to really difficult decisions. Again, good problems to have with respect to the old days where you either just died or they threw napalm at you like with me. And I'm lucky to be here 25 years later. The personalized medicine also includes the word person in it. And the anecdote I cite, and this is adjacent to immunotherapy because it was about, it was about a, 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 a generalized trial. And there was a young woman with a rare sarcoma, and she had just gotten engaged. And she and her fiancé were planning their wedding. They wanted to have a family. And the gist is that she needed to have a limb amputation in her leg to get rid of the sarcoma. And by doing that, it would spare her fertility because it was something they had to get done right away. There was no time to go through the three-month oocyte preservation. This is a very adolescent, young adult cancer-specific case here. So how do you work with a patient, this is rhetorical, I guess, You know, where what the medicine that's best for her would make her infertile, but the amputation would preserve her fertility? There's a lot of bioethics there, wouldn't you argue? Immunotherapy is, is so personal. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we have a saying at the Lymphoma Research Foundation, if you've met one lymphoma patient, you've met one lymphoma patient. And we say that because we recognize that not only are treatment patterns and options variable by each individual patient, but we also know that patient values are critical to treatment decision-making and each individual's cancer experience. Their unique preferences, values, concerns, and expectations that they bring to their cancer experience all must be integrated into their clinical decision-making. And we prioritize that. And we make certain as part of our patient education portfolio that we tell patients and and help support patients in recognizing that that's a valid feeling, that that needs to be a part of their decision-making and that those unique traits and values that make them an individual without question need to be a part of their cancer experience and their decision-making process. Yeah, we all hope for a day when cancer therapies are 100% effective and have zero side effects. That day is not now. And so it, it is absolutely critical that we have these conversations honestly and openly with patients about side effects, about benefits and risks, so that we can be respectful of their preferences, their, what they bring to the table, you know, culturally and familiarly and ethically to try to craft a treatment plan that works best for them. I like to cite good news 
it's it's so hard to remember that there can be good news in the world. Leo, can you give us a couple of examples, obviously de-identified and HIPAA compliant, of case studies where patients were made aware of the right CAR-T therapy, the right immunotherapy, and they had the most successful and wonderful outcome that they, that it, here's why it works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are so many of those examples that it's hard to name any, any one specifically, but we have seen a, a number of patients who have relapsed refractory leukemia and really have no good treatment options. But in the era of CD19 targeted CAR T cells, almost all of those patients are getting some response and many of them are achieving cures, which is just just phenomenal. These patients who come in, who are referred to our centers or other centers, really at the end of their rope being told, you know, this is the, the last 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 ditch effort. There's there's really nothing else available for you, and and then to see them get through that and leave the hospital, and you see them months later doing phenomenally well, starting to think about re-entering their lives is is really gratifying. And thus concludes episode two in our three-part series on immunotherapy. Why not complete the whole set and check out the third and final episode when Megan and Dr. Wong return once more to discuss the policies around, you guessed it, immunotherapy. But now we're going to talk about the waters of the FDA, legislation, regulatory bodies, really important stuff where the rubber hits the road. We'll see you there. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.